Sport Calgary is the voice for over 275 sports organizations in the Calgary area. Share your voice and become a Sport Calgary member for free at sportcalgary.ca slash members. Hey, 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 how are how, you good? You good? I hope you're good. Uh, welcome, kids. Uh, I'm your podcasting guru, your podcasting friend, your podcasting uh, host, whatever you want to use the terminology. I'm your podcasting friend, really. Uh, Rob Kerr, welcome to an original Six Feet Conversation podcast, a full disclosure podcast, a friend of mine today, uh, a newer friend, but a friend nonetheless, uh, and I think you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, if you are paying attention to what's going on in sport in our city over the last two years or so, you're probably familiar, and I've mentioned it, we've done podcasts with this guy and, and David Legg from Mount Royal, uh, the Active City Collective, um, and now there's another program that's coming out of that, uh, Bounce Back YYC. Uh, Dr. David Finch is our guest. He is um, a really cool guy. If you follow him on social media, he is not a shrinking violet by any stretch of the imagination. If he has an opinion, you are going to know it. What I like about him is he challenges the status quo. What I like about him is he's not looking for solutions or for somebody else to do the work. He wants to be part of it. Uh, great background in sports business. Uh, he has traveled the world. He is an award winner. Uh, he has spent time as a visiting professor at Ohio University where he taught an undergraduate sports management course there. Um, he was, as I mentioned, he was the founder of T1 Agency. We'll get into that. But most of all, he is a professor of marketing at Mount Royal University and a, and a running, friend, running buddy of uh, Dr. Uh, David Legg as well. So two friends of mine. Uh, but it's Dr. David Fitch on this podcast. Before we get to that, just a reminder that Calgary's home to world-class multi-sport facilities. Find the facility closest to you at sportcalgary.ca. Uh, settle in, folks. Grab something hot to drink and, and maybe uh, uh, you know something to nibble on because uh, this is a fun conversation. Here he is, the one, the only, Dr. David Finch. We are now heading into month number three. What have you observed? What have you learned so far? Well, and are we looking at it from a broader social perspective? I'm looking at it from a. I'm looking at it from you know Dr. Finch sitting in his chair, you know, contemplating life. Like, holy crap! I have blanked this in the last three months. Well, you know what? It's the systemic implications of this pandemic um, are, you know, the reach is unbelievable in every aspect of our life professionally and personally and globally obviously and it and it you know i don't know if you find this but i find myself reflecting back on huh that's really weird remember the days when you used to be able to walk in and talk to somebody in a restaurant without actually having to think about an entire strategy associated with how am i going to have a beer with somebody because I've really got to kind of be organized to do it well. And and the reality, man, in our world is I think regardless it's my role as a researcher or educator or somebody heavily involved in the kind of sport and recreation space is, you know, this this is going to be um, a pivot point globally um, on how we work together, how we socialize together, how we do anything together. I don't think this is a you know, we're going to be back to quote unquote normal in six months or normal in a year. I Mm -hmm. think it has this long-term impacts. And originally my, my thinking of this was, 
Oh, remember 9-11, and we think about the yep. implications of 9-11 and the way it has implications on security on airplanes, perceptions right. of safety and everything else. That is going to be just a, that is nothing. That is honestly, the systemic implications of 9-11 are nothing compared to what we're about to deal with and what we're dealing with, what it's going to have, certainly as long as we live in regards to how we think, look at things differently. Um, so it's just, it's, that's, you know, that's kind of where I'm sitting yeah, at this it, stage. It's weird that you say it that way because it's, you want, to me, it's watching TV and seeing people in a group and kind of reacting going, Ooh, Hey, wait a minute. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> that's so, the, so Rob, you, funny you raise that, man, because um, we watched 12 Angry Men. So it's in yep. 1956, Henry Fonda, 12 guys locked in a small room. Yep. And that's the exact reaction we had two days ago. Like, oh, that's really weird because that has now become abnormal. Right. Um, uh, in our mindset. And yep. it's like. Uh, remember the good old days when, <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 give me your sense of, of watching it in real time in something. It's funny you mentioned nine 11, um, in sports, we've had two screen viewing for a while now. Like the first time I had two screen viewing was watching the Canucks and Bruins in 2011 and having an iPad and watching Twitter at the same time. This is really one of the biggest things I've news-wise that I've ever seen with kind of a two-screen approach to it, and the role social media is playing in this because that is where I see you the most. Yeah, yeah, it's um, from a man. It you know, as as you know, um, you know. So I'm, I'm looking at more from a kind of a the broader active economy lens, Rob, when yep. I look at this stuff yep. and the kind of depth that we're getting into, because we are working on this book right now about the active economy. And, and you start looking at kind of the spectrum of the active economy, regardless of whether you're a supporter, a spectator, a participant, a policymaker, what have you, man, oh man, this all is resetting ground zero. Mm-hmm. Like we are all back to square one. And, and my greatest fear, I think, or, you know, certainly I know suspect you share the same fear is, um, honestly, I'm, le- I'm not concerned about the NHL, the NFL. I'm, yeah, I'm marginally concerned about certainly the sustainability of the CFL. I'm concerned about six-year-old kids, yep. right? I'm yep. concerned about a sport recreation, the inability to participate, the social implications that will have on everyone, but particular how we'll have start reframing the nature of sport recreation for children and the lifelong impacts that we'll have on their engagement in it at any level. Um, and that we're seeing that happen, that reset happening right now. We had a wonderful uh, webinar yesterday in which we had Kyle Schufelt and we had uh, a Jesse from uh, on the lacrosse side, and um, and then we had uh, the you know the president of of, of uh, Su- Soccer Susan Association Crest, yeah. talk yeah. right talking about the implications on their sport, and man, it is systemic and it just has such an impact. And this isn't going to be, well, next summer we'll back to square one. We're going to have a pause for you or back to square one. It doesn't work that way. Hmm. It's going to have this kind of reflection on what's the new normal as a terribly overused term, but it's going to reset all this stuff, Rob. And I think there's a real positive potential here as someone who's firmly in the camp of let them be kids and, you know, concerned about the, 
uh, the for-profit component of grassroots sport that has certainly crept up in the last decade. I, I can't help but wonder if there isn't a little bit of a settling here. Like, you know, having a third jersey for your Adam team or traveling to, you know, Pennsylvania to play in a tournament may not have the same priority as just getting out and participating and just getting out and being active. And that might be a positive reset, David. Yeah, I think you're right, man. Like the very nature of, you know, free play is yeah. has gone away. And and it's something we know the research shows free play is critical because it does set a lifelong love of games. Um, and and we see the data that looks at the free play that exists as young uh, as young children that becomes moved into very structured play mm-hmm. as they become eight, nine and ten, which then starts restricting their frankly, their engagement in the game. And I think the free play opportunity, um, when you, you know, when Susan was talking yesterday about having to reset the way, the, the way they have to play soccer because of smaller group participation in three on threes and lacrosse is going through a similar reset. That is just fun. If we can do it well, that gets kids engaged and have fun and move away from this, the, the kind of what's morphed in our lifetime into a division between quote unquote recreation and competitive. Hey man, let's just have fun. Yeah. It, it, it's a little, da- a little damning to me that it took a, a global pandemic, you know, cause there's, and you're, you're far more tied into the academic component of the, there's all kinds of science that shows that's the way it should be. Yet we seem to veer off and go, no, you know, we should maybe pay for this rather than it, 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 it bothers me a little bit, but Hey, if that's if that's a positive that could come out of this, uh, that would be great. That would be great. Well, the, the the flip side of that, and you know, again, when we look at it systemically, when we're looking at all this stuff, is financial capacity is going to be yep. a reset, right? And oh, this is sure. one thing that, but probably, you know, we're we've got band aids in place right now, obviously at a at a federal level for people. But that's going to be a reset on the affordability side that, you know, I know you and your world of minor hockey has have been a big proponent on inclusivity and be able to support kids through different yeah. programming to get them engaged, man. And uh, and that math changes dramatically in, uh, in, in households that are going to be financially strapped for the foreseeable future. And 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 the reality is if, if sport, whatever the free play dimension, structured play be, becomes a luxury um, and a household that, frankly, is focused on paying mortgages yep. and, and putting food on the table, yep. it does become a luxury. And so we've got to look at mechanisms that ensure um, that, to your point, free play is free play. Um, so we've got to create opportunities both at a civic and, and broader level to ensure that kids get out and play and it doesn't cost their parents $1,000. So let me veer a little bit away from this topic, uh, not that we will stray too far, but give me your rule of thumb in terms of how you disseminate information that we are fed. Um, it's funny, a, a mutual friend of ours, you might know him, Mr. Leg and I, um, had a conversation, and I am of the opinion that one of the th- lessons I'm learning out of this is, it's more from a media standpoint, is we're about 70% opinion piece and 30% news reporting now. We need to get back to 70% news reporting and 30% opinion piece. What's your rule of thumb for, as you say, it, we're, it's not going to be the same. But boy, oh boy, if you want to, if you want hockey and soccer to come back next week, somebody's written about it. If you don't think it's coming back for four years, somebody's written about it. Like the, right now, if, whatever narrative you want to paint, you can find out there. So, what's your rule of thumb for trying to find the the truth? 
Well, what's interesting, Rob, is there's some interesting research coming out. They just released, uh, Edelman um, just released some Canadian research they've conducted mm. on, on the role of trust in society. So Edelman does a lot of work around something called a trust barometer. And I, I based a lot of my PhD research around the Edelman model. And what the reset, the biggest concern I've seen, certainly in the last decade, is the decline of institutional trust. And those institutions might be tied to um, uh, government institutions. They might be tied to uh, media, you know, that yep. has an institution sure. and the trust in media. Um, and, you know, those things give us a common baseline to work from. And the challenge we've seen, that this is not breaking news, over the last decade, with especially the fragmentation of media, the advent of social media, the advent of quote-unquote fake news, the ability to be locked in your little echo chamber, as you're talking about, and find reinforcements and, uh, and alleged facts to support your position. Mm. What, we're, what, what Edelman's data is showing is one of the resets that's happening is um, – Canada is now one of the leaders in regards to a massive jump, a 20-point jump in institutional trust. And that's tied to um, trust in government is the second highest in the world, I believe, after the UK, if I recall. Um, it's 20-plus points higher than the US. Um, that Oof. means we are starting to listen to uh government leaders, um, whether they be public health officials, whether they be political leaders, because we're seeing... Um, a move away from partisanship and it's putting community and country first. And we're starting to see leaders where, you know, that historically are very fragmented department partisan or ideological where that has a massive impact on, are they feeding me a line? Or are they feeding me something I can believe? We're starting to believe these people again. And we're also Canada has seen a massive jump in tradition, support and trust in traditional media um, as a primary source of information. And that is because, yeah, man, Rob Kerr and Dave Finch can be tweeting out whatever we're tweeting about. But these guys, a core framework and element of trust is perceived expertise yeah. of those horse, right? Yeah. There's a confidence factor. And Rob Kerr and David Finch are not public health officials. Nope. So Rob Kerr and David Finch can be talking all we want about, um, don't worry, there won't be, uh, you know, COVID um, uh, concerns on that baseball or basketball. No one's going to believe us. Why would they believe us? They're going to believe Dr. Hemsher. And they're going to believe, you know, a public health officials that knows what they're talking about. And that's where we're seeing a migration back to media. And why? Why it, the, the reality is this. There, when you look at the very nature of trust, Rob, trust is, is a directly correlated to risk, right? Yep. So if you look at risk, if, if there's something I'm concerned about, there's risk involved. I, I migrate to a trusted source of information. We know that. That's generations old research. This is exactly where we're coming back. Because the pandemic elevates the level of risk, personal risk, and personal, I mean, not just yourself, but your entire social kind of network. Right. That therefore you're migrating. You want to go to a trusted source of information. Um, and therefore, I'm not rolling the dice on, on David Finch who's has a PhD in management, all of a sudden pretending to be an expert in public health. I'm yeah. not, and I'm not going to pretend to be. Yeah. Um, and so this is a really an important evolution. And whether it sticks in the world of a Donald Trump, um, 
and the and the contamination and kind of the impact he has north of the border is is to be determined. So the, the information you're talking about this shift is this is this recent as in during this pandemic is that the the information you're talking yeah. about? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so okay. Just, okay. The research that was just released on Tuesday okay. this week, and it's research that's been conducted the last two weeks. So it's absolutely triggered by the pandemic that as we start looking for trusted sources of information, mm. you know, in the old world, I might migrate to somebody who I think is ideologically uh, linked to my perspective, that echo chamber problem. Yep. People are, are we're starting to see that people are starting to filter that and say, hey, man, that person may be an expert in X. They're not an expert in Y. And that Y means, you know, public health and and uh, and the associate expertise. So, it, which I like, you gave me another way of saying affirmation, or information versus affirmation, right? That that's, you know, my old world, that was my big thing too. Don't come to me for affirmation, come to me for information. And that's what right. I, I'm beginning to hear from you. Why, why did we, why, as an academic, why did we get there? Was that because I often heard about social media? Social media was this incredible opportunity for people to have a voice that have never had a voice and could talk about anything and could be anything. Is is it just we needed time to kind of stretch our muscles and flap our wings and okay that was cool but now let's get back to reality and we're reining that in? Is or is it is it just strictly pandemic driven? Uh, that is, you know, it, I hope it, I hope there's a system sustainability to it. I hope the confidence that we that that we have in our fundamental civic institutions mm-hmm. again both political but also from a media perspective um provide that kind of baseline that we lost um um you know it's classic case rob you know i think about this all the time and the fragmentation of media and media and a variety of things you know the old days of Back in the 1990s, man, the good old days of Thursday nights and on Friday mornings, we we're all talking about Seinfeld because we actually have a common framework around the water cooler yeah. about something we shared together. Yeah. Now, now what we're all sharing actually is what you and I are doing right now. We are locked in our homes. So there's this common kind of the water cooler is the context we're dealing with right now. Yes. And it's something that we can all share together, which which is the fundamentally the fabric of society. And it's the fabric of community. It's something that we have some shared purpose and and experiences. And one of the challenges with that we've seen certainly in the last decade is that sharing has now broken from broader social and community sharing to sharing with my little echo chamber. And, and that's all that matters to me because they start to kind of amplify and reaffirm to your point, everything I believe in. And I'm comfortable there. That is not, that's not community and that's not society. Whether it sticks, I'm, I'm uncertain on because the social media platforms that exist, um, are, are an economic engine, right? So they there's reinforcing for them to get back to where we were. I think I'm tearing up a little bit because of your Seinfeld reference because it was it was so true. Like it was so true. Like, can you believe that? Did you watch? They did the contest last night. Like I can remember those conversations, <laughs> exactly. right? But I have to, and this has nothing to do with what we were talking about. But it is an aside. For the first time since then, 
I kind of feel like The Last Dance has been that for me. That's that's the the the, the Michael Jordan documentary has kind of been yep. everybody I've been talking to has been you know Game of Thrones. Oh, I don't like dragons or you know Walking Dead. I don't like zombies. But there seems to be almost that sense of community in this about that one, at least in the sports community, about that one particular documentary. Yeah, and it's funny. It's uh, for me. It's it's Zoom and Google Hangout. It like, is eh? because everyone's frustration. Of, I saw a tweet the other day was, um, if I have to, uh, what was it? If if I have to sit on another call in which somebody says, um, can can everyone put on mute, please? Can everyone go on mute, please? It's like there's the shared language that we do ten times a day. Well, the SNL. Did you did you see the SNL sketch last week? The church and Keenan Thompson's the minister, and and that's exactly it. It's like. This is so representative of my life. Turn, stop talking. I'm trying to talk. I can't hear. Yeah. But it's, so there's, you know, and I, one of the thing I think, you know, uh, we all should be taking out of this is truly finding those silver linings, right? Yep. And and turning the challenge into an opportunity because um, one of the things I'm finding with a bunch of the kind of community work that we're doing is the ability to use these platforms to engage people very efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, we're, we're hosting our webinars on Thursday. We're launching another series. We're going to be opening on, on Wednesdays. And there's no excuses. Everyone can push click. They don't have to get in their car. They don't have to walk 10 blocks from another building to go to a meeting. Um, they can just click and be engaged, right? And I that is the one positive. Um, out of this. I think that's a big positive. And, you know, I was going to save that till the end. Let's go there now um, because you're right. The Thursday webinars that are, I guess, born out of Active City Collective, um, I think have been absolutely brilliant. Um, the cool part for me was I, I kind of invited my staff and and I thought, you know, hey, we guys come watch this because this is kind of important. And sure, maybe, but they're there before I am now. Right. Like it, mm. it, you're getting really good engagement. And and I think it's a how did that all come about? Because it in so many ways, it's so complementary to what Active City is. But we would have never talked about that six months ago or anything like that. Right. Well, I guess we did. You know yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Right. Yeah, no, it's funny. The problem is six months ago or three months ago, we're overthinking it. Right. Yeah, um, sure. And. We had, we had launched a series of five workshops um, that were going live in the, the first one was scheduled for the middle of March. Mm, that's right. Um, and, and we had a book rooms. We had a then set up registration. Um, we had to do all this back in logistics. We had to then get panels and schedule people to be on panels at certain times and get flip charts and, and get moderators. Re- like the amount of, of, of work that went into setting up a two or three hour session uh, when they by definition died as a result of where we are right now, we canceled all our workshops. This led to the role we're supposed to play. The role that we have been challenged to play in the community is to bridge all these, all these groups together, these subsectors together as part of one broader active city. Um, How the hell can we do that? And it was literally David Legg and I just on a, I think it was a Saturday, actually. Um, going on back and forth, I'm like, let's just let's just try a hangout. Because fortunately, as academics, we have access to a very robust uh, platform that we use from from an educational perspective. So Leg and I just literally invited a few people, 
blasted out to the summit attendee list and said he wants to come. And that first day um, was hilarious because once we got past 10, I knew I was David and I were beyond direct family. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I was literally going to be having my boys dial in if necessary because we had panelists and I didn't want to be embarrassed. And then all of a sudden we hit 50 and we went and then we hit 60 and went, what the hell? Um, We All we did is send out an email and opened up a link. Um, And so that's the origin of it is because it's simple. And I've been taking this away from that, that man, it's the old kiss rule. Keep it simple, stupid. We overthought from my perspective, and I've said this many, many times, the post-summit active city, we had set up a whole series of targeting micro communities and building out workshops, blah, blah, blah. It's like, or you can just do this. And that's the one thing I'm taking from this, that now everyone is comfortable with sitting on Zoom or sitting on a Google Hangout or whatever the equivalent platform might be. But there's no barriers to involvement. The original idea would not have been obviously what these have evolved into though right no um and they and this is where the fine-tuning inevitably happens always is no the idea was to have people present on timely topics but they were going to kind of eat up the full hour yeah um and and probably it's just me and my ADHD or something, but I got bored after people talking for 20 minutes. Um, and I'm like, and so I'm like, no, 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 we got to make this far more agile interactive because we couldn't keep up the amount of questions that were coming, Rob. And yeah. so that's we, the beauty of the chat board is you walk in the chat board, like, holy smokes, there's 25 questions here. And we were kind of giving people 45 minutes to talk between one or two presenters and then falling into questions that we couldn't get through remotely enough questions, which suggested people want to be involved in a dialogue, not a one-way kind of blah. Right. And and so therefore we went to this new model and that's really worked well. And I'm mimicking is five minute kind of introductions to take your position on a key topic or theme and then opening it up for a dialogue across the panelists and amongst the guests. You and I have done enough of this and I have an opinion. I'd like yours. I, I do find that, this has been one of the most productive back and forths that I have seen. Do you agree? I mean, we can hold a, we can put everybody in a room and we can have somebody present and they go, or, you know, stick your hand up. If you have any questions? I do find that this format tends to bring out more questions, more curiosity. At least that's how I feel. Do you see it that way? Yeah. And from an educator's perspective, there's a lot of science behind this too. Rob. Oh, okay. So when you look at the very nature of learning, and you have to design your learning environment reflecting the diversity of people. So think about it in a classroom, right? In a classroom, you've got the extroverts that are sitting in the front row, throwing up their hands, and they can run the bu- they can literally run the show if you only care about them. What I've certainly discovered moving into you know academia and as an educator the last decade is there's the quiet introvert in the back row that has a lot to contribute. So you need to give them an opportunity in a form that they're comfortable with to engage. So that might be through a smaller group project or that might be through other forums. What we're finding through online learning and what has been discovered through online learning over the last, you know, it's been around for about 20 years now, is that this is where the introverts have a platform to engage on their terms, right? Okay. and this is what we see in the chat room. This is what the conversation you see in the chat room that's easy for somebody who may be uncomfortable historically putting up their hand in a room of 100 people to ask a question or hand them a mic. Putting putting the, putting the question on the chat board and pushing submit 
is easy. And so that's the inclusive nature of this mm. this platform. Now, now, there's obviously obviously downsides of the platform as well because there isn't that social engagement interaction that normally exists. But the upside is, in fact, much broader engagement. I want to ask you about the Wednesdays in a second, but just since you brought me here, how do you see the next six months next year does this format live beyond and the reason i asked that we were talking about kids earlier and you know when this thing started there was lots of tiktok videos and videos of challenges and everybody those seem to have seemed to have slowed down like now that we're three months into it you know some of that enthusiasm for creating that content has gone away does this format as you've described it live beyond the you know the end of this well, you know, it's funny because, you know, yesterday Mount Royal uh, announced that the fall classes are going to be online. Um, and, you know, that's challenging. Obviously, earlier this week, McGill, UVic, UBC, and some other schools announced they're going to be online as well. Yep. Um, that's problematic. Um, it creates a bunch of challenges. Um, um, you know, we're going there. And, and some students will go there. I'm not certain all students will certainly go there. You know, the, the optimal model for me, Rob, is yes, I think there's going to be an element of this going forward, this, this you know, being able to work efficiently online. You probably saw this week that Twitter has now announced that all employees from now to the end of time can now work from home. Um, and I think if you they can have it, broad, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Right. And right? so, and so this is where it's going to be interesting that hell man, I, in my previous life professionally, I worked from home for, you know, literally for, for a decade. So I was kind of there. This is, this is not difficult for me yeah. for others. It is because they are very social animals and this is not working, um, uh, for others who would have thought, never thought in a million years, they could effectively work from home. Um, they're starting to kind of understand the benefit of not having a two-hour commute uh, in certain communities, and how this kind of kind of kind of contributes to it kind of looking at life differently because right. there's less of a barrier now for others. Rob, it's one of the big challenges, is especially depending upon where where you are, life stages, is the challenge of working from home with this type of platform. Is you're never detached, right? You're always on. And, and I discovered that very early on, you know, 20 years ago, working from home, that shit, man, if you don't close that door yep. and say the workday is over, the workday never ends. Yeah, um, I can see that. And I think, I think we need to get there now. Um, so I think the, I think, I think it's opened up a new audience for this type of platform, whether it be through education, professional, social, I think the sweet spot is, is going to be using it as a complementary tool, not using it as the tool. And right now we are forced for obvious reasons that it is our home. Right. Um, and, and like I've been, my, my, my mom is 92 years old and I've been FaceTiming her for 10 years uh, because she lives on her iPad. Yeah. Um, um, so, but for others, it you know they're going to go back to square one where they were, and for others, they may not. Um, Thursday, the Thursday sessions we've been talking about, Active City Collective based, so COVID response conversation around the active economy. What is Wednesday's sessions going to be about? So one of one of the things that we've been discussing, um, it actually was triggered immediately after the Active City Summit, Rob, is this this concept of an active economy that we've talked about before. We've certainly, yep. you know, had a podcast talking about the very nature of this kind of broader active economy. Um, Patty Pond from Calgary, 
arts development, who's, you know, was, uh, I got to know quite well through her involvement um, on CBEC, the Calgary Bid Exploration Group, and, and the recognition that the 2026 Olympic and Paralympic Games are as much as a, as a celebration of arts and culture as it is sport. Mm-hmm. And there is the fact that there's a natural collision there. Now, from an academic perspective, there's been this concept of called the experience economy over the last 20 years that recognizes the, the value of experiences and creating value um, across a range of sectors. So it's really, con- I'll call it content agnostic. Um, because it's the value. It doesn't matter if it's music or sport. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a retail, uh, you know, uh, uh, context or uh, or tourism and hospitality. We're we're dealing with the experience can create um, new value. It's the one plus one equals three. Right. And and so we, Patty and I have been discussing um, for some time about man, what if we looked at Calgary as being a leader in what we call the experience economy. So, and I use my tagline called the future of Calgary isn't about stuff, right? Because we can become world leaders in creating world leading experiences. And it's about the collision of arts and culture um, with sport recreation and, and, you know, literally X marks the spot. So, so when you look at the very kind of the hardest hit sectors, Rob, when it comes to the nature of the pandemic, um, one of the things that was canceled when we were going to have an experience economy roundtable uh, in May that we're going to bring leaders in the arts and culture community with leaders in the sports and rec community together to look at what do we have in common. Um, and so what we're launching on Wednesday um, is something called Bounce Back YYC. Mm-hmm. And Bounce Back YYC is focusing on the recognition that the most exposed sector in in Alberta, that's about um, 400,000 people uh, work in that sector in Alberta, about 150 in Calgary alone. Um, and uh, in Calgary, it's about 15,000 organizations are involved in the experience economy. At the Alberta level, it generates about $40 billion of, of annual GDP. It's a big number, yeah. right? Yeah. These these organizations, whether it be you know a small community restaurant that lives a, a block from your house, your you know um, minor sports league, a, a ballet studio, these are all a high risk. These are the one organizations that are at the highest risk. They are the fabric of our community, mm-hmm. and the numbers I've seen is anywhere between twenty and fifty percent are insolvent by December. They just don't have sufficient liquidity or support to keep them going when they can't open um, or if they can only open to a limited extent that that increases their operating costs and decreases their revenues. So what we're focusing on, it's going to be so it's, it's in fact a multi-pronged program that merges the active city work into it because the, the, the challenge I've had with the webinars and the forums we have on Thursday is the so what, now what question, Rob. Sure. It's like, okay, we have a great conversation yesterday on youth sports, and then we go away, right? And people have been challenging David and I to say, what do we do now? What do we do now? And, and I've been challenged with, man, what do we do now? Where's the opportunity for Active City to mobilize and create value beyond a conversation? Right. So the, the, the other part of the experience economy, Rob, that's been hammered by this is education. 
is specifically experiential education where I do a lot of my work is mm -hmm. recognizing that the classroom um, is does not have a monopoly on learning. And that, as you know, because you've worked with my students before, yep. the ability to sit in the dome and work with you and interact with your team is an enormous learning opportunity that has now gone away. So in Calgary, tens of thousands of students that were supposed to be employed this summer, um, either through co-op or practicums or apprenticeships or, or summer jobs, are now gone away. Mm -hmm. Right. So the federal government's provided them financial support, um, which is great. Mm -hmm. They're still sitting at home playing video games. Um, and this is where this idea of turning this challenge into an opportunity kind of arose that it's the convergence of the fact that these experience economy organizations, of which of the experience economy, Rob, 69% in Calgary, 69% in Calgary have less than five employees. Think about this. Yep. They are small businesses, right? Yep. Um, I've got tens of thousands of students on the other side of the equation that are smart, creative, and innovative, right? And so the idea around this idea of bounce back YYC is actually merging those two together. That can we create an opportunity to mobilize these really smart, creative, and innovative students that that want to contribute to their community um, with real problems that all, the experience economy is having. And so what we're looking at doing then is we're then launching a series of work called hackathons in June, which will pair groups and teams of students with small businesses and organizations to help them solve real problems. Hackathons are small, they're compressed, they're down to 72 hours, they're very targeted, they're competitive, so people win and people lose, but at the end of the day, the students will get this real world learning out of this opportunity. And what we're hoping is that these organizations that decide to participate will get a new view on how to run their business because that's what they need. They need to understand, they need to work with the way minor hockey is going to be played, the way restaurants are going to be structured, the way um, tourism will be dealt with, the way retail will be managed in the future will be fundamentally different. And they need a fresh lens, and that's what we're hoping these students can provide. These are not social clubs or social endeavors. Is there an academic component? Is there a research component? I know there is for Active City, but will there be for Bounce Back? Yeah, so one of the, the really um, encouraging things that we've done is absolutely our, our greatest fear um, as a community and as researchers in this area is um, – when you look at the kind of nature of social engagement, whether it be attending a Flames game someday in the future, a Stampeders game, or being prepared to send your kids back to school, or having your, your son or daughter participate in organized sport, there's a, there's a risk consideration. I, I look at it as nothing more than a, a, a risk-reward calculation that we all make. Is the reward of, of uh, going to a mall in next week or is the reward of going to a flames game next year uh, sorry the risk is worth the reward um on the other side of the equation right right so there's a calculation there right that ha that's going to be made and that calculation is a moving target it's also unique to every individual because they are then calculating what's the risk to my family what's the reward for my family um for going to Chinook or going to school so one of the concerns we had immediately um, in, in March as this was going on was the risk of these small organizations um, using something called we call free search. Um, mm -hmm. 
um, in which they start Googling, hey, you know, what are we seeing in LA or what are we seeing in Barcelona or what are we seeing in Montreal um, from a perception of interest in sending my kids to school, interest in going to games, interest in having my family participate in organized recreation. What's the data showing? And and then contextualize that data for Calgary or for their own small business. Bad, bad way to run a business because we have no idea of the dynamics of, of New York City or Montreal or Barcelona transition to what they might be feeling in Calgary or Edmonton. So what we then did with, um, through Active City, uh, Tim, Tim Olson, who's on our board, um, runs a research firm uh, called Stone Olson with Matt Stone. And they are a spectacular local research organization that does a lot of community-based research with groups like the Stampede, Calgary Arts Development, and others. Um, and so we immediately reached out to them because we needed, it wasn't an academic endeavor. What we needed is something far more commercial and agile. Mm. And, and we wanted to launch a research study, Rob, that looked at the issue of live experiences of the experience economy in exclusively in Alberta context. Um, and, and we wanted to do it over, over time. So we wanted to, we mapped out six rounds of data collection, collecting data every 60 days that then looked at the evolution of this. But the trigger for this, Rob, for me personally, was something called open data. So we wanted the day to be open. We wanted everyone, I don't care if you're a small mom and pop shop or the Calgary Flames or the Evans Norlers, we wanted everyone to have access to this data. So at least we're all on the level playing field when it comes to making good decisions about the future of our organization or our community, right? right? right. So to do that, um, that's not a small ticket. You know, this t- the, to be able to do this well, um, Stone and Olson, uh, great guys, community-oriented guys are doing it at cost. All they have to do is cover the hard costs because they're contributing all their, all their time and effort to the project. But we had to raise $100,000. And we reached out to um, community organizations across the province and raised $100,000 in less than two weeks. <laughs> so, you know, groups like Calgary Arts Development, uh, groups like the Alberta uh, Foundation for the Arts, Calgary Foundation, ATB, uh, Travel Alberta all stepped up as partners and said, this is important for our, our province. This is important for our community. So that research launches um, uh, next week. The yep. first round of data will be ready in June, in early June, and it's going to feed the hackathon. So people can start um, making um, localized, contextualized decisions based on real information. So we're going to be able to, you know, as we know, Calgary is very different than Edmonton. Pre-pandemic and especially currently because of the the hit it's had on our city relative to Edmonton. How does that influence the attitudes of people in that city when it comes to re-engaging the social activities? Are we going to see a big difference between Calgary and Edmonton? Um, And therefore, will that maybe influence the decisions that um, uh, business people make in the experience economy in Calgary relative to what they may have to make in, in Edmonton. So that's kind of the origin of the research. That's really been a big push we've had around this, Rob. And so it's the three prongs of, you know, building community through the webinar, um, building evidence through the research. And then the third dimension is then building an action plan through the hackathons. All right. I got to do a promo, but before I do a promo, I'll let you do a promo. Why don't you throw up the uh, contact information and the uh, and the call to action for both Active City and for uh, and for Bounce Back, so that if people are listening, want to get involved. You bet. Um, so I, I, 
I'm just going to guide people to our websites. Yep. So if you'd like to learn about the um, Active City uh, Future Making Forums, they're every Thursday from 3 to 4. Um, you can register at activecityproject.org. Uh, um, for the experience economy, the Bounce Back YYC program, uh, we are actively going to be starting recruiting uh, students and organizations in the community to participate. Uh, and that website is bouncebackyyc.com. Perfect. And I'll let everybody know to check out Sport Calgary this week in sport for the latest in news and updates. Calgary Sports Community. Go to sportcalgary.ca. Um, when did, when did, and I'm going to go away from active. I'm going to call it sport. When did sport come into your life? Oh man. Um, when I was two, my, my brother was, uh, my brother's 16 years older than me. So he was a high school football player in Southern Ontario, played for Cathedral High School in Hamilton. And, uh, he was my idol, as you can imagine, right? Cause he was that age. And he got me hooked, man, uh, throwing footballs at me when I couldn't even walk. Um, and, uh, and then that just, you know, soaked me up. My dad um, was, a, you know, massively into sports, grew up in the Depression and uh, originally came from uh, Cape Breton, but then moved to Windsor. So played, um, uh, played hockey, football. Um, baseball was a massive Detroit Tigers fan growing mm-hmm. up in Windsor back in the depression. Right. Um, and, and what was interesting, Rob, just on that is, so there's six kids in our family, my brother being the oldest, he played football, but never played baseball or hockey. Uh, my dad's sport is really baseball and hockey. Yeah. Um, then we've got four girls, uh, but played some levels of sports, but in those days, back in the, you know, fifties and sixties, like they did the girl guides thing and all that. Yeah, thing, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, the last boy is born in 1967. And my dad was at that point, man, my dad was 44. Um, and, um, I became his link to sports. He coached every team I was on. I just, I, I, for, it was just, that's the way it would work. My dad was my hockey coach. He was my baseball coach. He was my football coach. We golfed twice a week because we were members of our golf club. So we were like, he just, everyone, everything I did with my dad was that. And, um, and then that just made me into to who I am from a sport perspective. I was never necessarily a high performance person, yeah. but man, it was just, my life was defined by the seasonality of the sport. Um, Participation or fandom, were you, or were you in both camps? Oh, both, man. You were, uh, eh? Yeah, okay. Uh, oh, like, yeah, absolutely. So, Played sports right through high school, but then, you know, lived for, you know, living in Southern Ontario, man. I remember 1977 with the Blue Jays coming. Uh, my dad called me the vacuum because I played second base. And the ability to go to exhibition stadium and watch, you know, the Blue Jays play. Or, again, growing up in Burlington, I was a Hamilton high cat man. So Tony Gabriel, who's originally from Burlington, sure. double, double, I got his book signed, man. So again, um, that entire, like, I just remember those kind of pivoted moments in, in my life of my life was defined by sporting events and by meeting and participating and playing and meeting people in that community. Were you guided by that love, you know, into your post-secondary career was the career path going to be sport for you because you've you've dabbled a little bit in it so no when i so when i so it's funny so um 
when I went into university from my undergrad perspective, I got very involved in student government, right? So yep. I got very involved, not unlike what we're doing right now. It's about mobilizing and activating a community to make a difference. So um, I was at uh, the University of Western Ontario. I got heavily involved in student government there. And that kind of brought me into that kind of government. My degree was in political science. Okay. I then did a master's degree in, in international relations, but I focused on public policy and was very much focused on intelligence communications my first gig was so i immediately migrated into kind of the policy side and sport was play mm -hmm. uh sport okay. was my love i played yeah. you know touch football recreational you know all that stuff still through my 20s and 30s but but my job was around policy and to a lesser extent marketing um and and it's funny because that's where kind of i took that pathway and it wasn't until i went to um Rogers. So I, I migrated to Rogers from Bell and I was the director of marketing for Alberta, which gave me an opportunity to look at sponsorship mm -hmm. and look at assets and look at these partnerships. Like our, our we, we sponsored the Edmonton Oilers. We were sponsors of the Calgary Stampede. And I was really intrigued about the ability of, of the one plus one equals three and the ability to, to be able to strategically build partnerships that created value for a whole bunch of different people if done well. And my challenge, Rob, was the inability to measure that. So that pulled me into that world. I then launched an agency with a partner in Toronto that really looked at this issue of sponsorship and valuation. Um, and then I realized working on the agency side for five years, I was just struggling with the methodology that it was really using traditional historical advertising methods for, for the valuation of um, community investment and sponsorship and not looking at it more systemically and as a whole different way to measure. And that led me to my PhD. So that then pulled me into that. And that's where I started getting hooked in with David Legg and into the broader sports community. Well, tell me a little bit about T1 and what you guys were, were doing with that agency, because it seems to me, I'm, I'm thinking about the timeline, but it probably would have been a really rich period in which to be involved in that, you know, that sports sponsorship and, and promotion kind of world. What, what was your experience like? Well, it was interesting because it was, you know, again, uh, back in the nineties and early two thousands, just as literally the internet is going, yeah, getting to go, they were, it was essentially what was happening at that point, Robin, you would have seen this from a media perspective is people are just, um, pretending the internet was a form of broadcast media and slapping logos on things and hanging banners and events. And it was all one and the same. And, and it wasn't. Um, and, and so when Mark Harrison and I and um, Rod Young, our third partner, looked at kind of forming Trojan One, which is now T1, it was, you know, I came from the client side. Mm -hmm. um, Rod came from the agency side. He was our creative director. And then Mark came from the promotion side. And what we said is, you know, it was all about an emotional connection. And, and our position was that you can't build an emotional connection from a thousand miles away. Um, that the one thing mass media does uh, is build awareness. Um, but the emotional connection is about a connection between people and there's a face-to-face -face dimension about it. And so we wanted to look at this agency fundamentally differently by looking at, it was founded upon the principle of, of being able to use sponsorship and be able to use community investment assets to build emotional connection between organizations and people. But then looking at how then it created value. Value comes in a whole bunch of different ways. So looking at it much more holistically was the origin of, of Trojan One and T1. Yeah. And then it was fascinating 
important to, because our partners were the hockey Canada's of the world. Our partners were the Nikes of the world and being able to look at things differently. Now those organizations are very progressive. Um, when you look at some of those larger sport media organizations, they are very progressive. They saw where the puck was going. Yep. Um, and they needed some help get there. Um, and that's really where things came into it. I just, you know, when I look at the stuff we were doing back then, like it was revolutionary, like, I don't know, websites. Um, and, but where things went um, with social media and then apps post-2008 is, is just revolutionized the game. I, I do have to ask you because that era would have been when I, you know, I, I was involved in an internet startup, a, a broadcast startup in the early 2000s, which nowadays makes all the sense in the world, but then just made no sense to people um, you must have wrestled with the how do we monetize the internet question for clients, right? At that period of time, not as much, Rob, because we were looking at most of our clients were dealing with it from a transactional. So okay. we weren't looking at it from a transactional perspective. We were looking at it from an amplification and a relationship perspective. Gotcha. So, for example, Hockey Canada and our partner, our client was Imperial Oil or Esso. Mm -hmm. So it was the ability to look at different mediums on how do you how do you leverage the Hockey Canada assets um, and be able to kind of look at the goals of the business goals of Esso um, and be able to meld the two. So, for example, one of the what I talked about this program that I was involved in, uh, which was the Esso Medals of Achievement uh, program, yep. which had been around for. 50 flipping years um, when we when we were pulled in and and hockey canada it was it's actually a hockey canada asset property that that so has the sponsorship rights to and the not the data was the data the data was showing significant decline in participation uh, at the community level mm -hmm. um um and that just people are tuning out um, and so's got their name brand on this but who flipping cares yeah and hockey canada's seen this kind of um, trophy asset in decline. And so we were, that's a classic case of bringing a, a third-party agency to think about things and dissect it, gotcha. right? Gotcha. And so, yeah. so when we dissected it, when we got into that program, Rob, what was really interesting, my team here in Calgary, we're, we're working with Hot Can and the Imperial Oil team on this on this project. I just got in, this is the data science in me. I just started crunching the numbers. I literally wanted to know all the teams I then had my team analyze by community and by population density of where were we seeing growth or stability, where were we seeing declines, right? What we were seeing was um, massive declines in cities like Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton. No one cared it, because there's too much noise in those markets, right? Yep. Where we were seeing opportunity was in smaller communities, where minor hockey teams, there's still a community dimension to them, right? So what did we do? We migrated the whole thing online, uh, the registration process online. I then set up a call center of my staff to just dial for dollars, but their dollar, their target was communities with 50,000 people or less, right? And, and if I recall, um, that program, I think we doubled in size in about 60 days. Because we just started dialing small communities that had 20 hockey teams. You hit the commissioner of the league who has access to all the leagues and all the age levels. Bang. We all of a sudden now have this little hockey league on. And then we could, my staff could close those deals 
overnight. And then we went from 10,000 teams or to 20,000 teams or from 20,000 teams to 40,000 teams. And that was the ability to leverage the internet effectively mm-hmm. with data. To, and, and I just told my student, my, my staff, we don't care about so KPIs are not about Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, and Calgary. Yeah. Um, our KPIs are all about everyone else. And the everyone else exploded the program. And interestingly, Rob, from an imperial oil perspective, those communities are enormously valuable uh, to that company and that brand. And so they won. Hockey Canada won because the program exploded. And and for us, it's a case study of the ability to use data and use data to make better decisions and reallocate resources and grow something. Were you So was that project a, a legacy of the Open Ice Summit? In 99? No, no. So that project was a legacy, the fact that it was in the uh, Imperial Oil Hockey Canada contract. Oh, okay. okay. So okay. They, it was an asset that they owned that, yeah. they, that was just kind of had gone stale, right? Sure. And this happens sure. all the time. Yep. And, uh, and then, but, but, but simultaneously, hockey, uh, what origins of the hockey ice summit in 99 was the measurement of the decline of hockey participation right. that, that is a fact that was happening at the time it yep. still is happening yeah um and and both the and then that was an important problem that imperial wanted to contribute to solving and hockey canada needs solve and here was an asset that was actually targeted towards achieving that that had gone stale so that was that was certainly part of our thinking that uh, it's, it seems to me, and I don't know, again, I've been off a little bit on my targeting here, but it, is that kind of the one of the first efforts to use the internet and data capture and, and you know, as opposed to at that point, we're just building websites to advertise our movies sort of thing. It seems to me like you were one of the first groups to kind of identify a purpose for it and, a, and a, you know, and, and, and actually growing something, you know what I mean, rather than straight advertising. Yeah, and I, I think I I think the ability to use it as a tool and yeah. view it as 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 a tool, right? Um, you know, honestly, at the time, at the like it seems insane, but at the time, if you wanted your hockey team, Rob's a coach, mm-hmm. you wanted your hockey team to participate in the hockey uh, in the medals of achievement program. Here's what you needed to do: you needed to go find an ESO gas station. You needed to go to the 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 person behind the counter. Um, for them to give you an application form right. that you then filled out right. and mailed to somebody. Right. Um, there are just from a transaction perspective, yeah. as we analyze that. So the person on the counter is a student has no idea where the forms are. Right. Um, so that you, that smaller community has no SO station. That's that's relatively easy for them. You look at it from a pure transactional perspective. There were so many opportunities for that to break down. The opportunity was keep make it simple, man. Yep. And make it simple was build a damn website. So if Coach X wanted to go online and register their team, right? At Coach X could. But more importantly, what if the league could register all their teams? We then all of a sudden went from one person to 100 people. And it was just simplification. And that's where the internet's powerful. It just simplifies it. Yeah, no, and and that's a really, I like the way you put it. Like, you know, gone are the days of opening up the magazines and having all the little inserts fall out, you know, and and shoving them. We can do all of that. Um, Just to jump ahead a bit, did, was... Are you an academic now by design or by accident? Absolutely by accident, man. Like, so when I went back and did my PhD, yeah, starting in 2007, 
Um, I went back to the purpose of designing a model for the valuation of sponsorship and community investment. Um, and then I had intended fully just to move back onto the agency side and provide a, be a consultant. Um, while I was doing that, I picked up a couple of classes while I was, while I was studying mm-hmm. and just realized, man, there's something in, you know, you're, I know you get heavily involved in David's class. You've been involved in my class. There's just a, a mutual energy there in a classroom working with young, energetic, smart, smart people. And then that just pulled me in, um, it did, just yeah. pulled me into yeah. academia um and i'm a guy and you know this too we've worked together enough now that every day i come up with another question that needs to be answered um and and the ability and as an academic to then collaborate with other smart people whether they be students or researchers or or community leaders to answer answer hard questions is just something that gets me up every morning but you're a disruptor aren't you um i i yes my my I go in with the assumption that everything can be done better. Yeah. Um, that being said, that's one thing I've certainly, I think this is, happens with maturity men. Um, when I was 22 years old, I remember my first day at Bell Canada, man. Um, my assumption was everything's broken and I'm the smartest person in the room. Um, <laughs> and, and I didn't have an appreciation for history and for experience. Um, and I think there's an opportunity, you know, the sweet spot is everything can be done better. Um, but step one is understanding where did this come from? Mm-hmm. What's the origin of it? What's the history? What's been tried before? Um, and then building from that. And that's a maturity thing. And that's where I always start. My first question is always about history. Yeah. I want to understand the history of something so we can then build on that. When I was 22, I didn't give the, the past was the past. I only cared about the future. And then that's that's where I would say my disruption comes from. Somewhere along the line in society, we have deemed academics as elites and, um, you know, more trouble than they're worth, I guess. I look at you, I look at David as guys who absolutely, you guys roll up your sleeves. You want to get dirty. You want to get involved. I mean, the bounce back and active city prove that is that the is that the proper perception of academics do you think which where do we where do we live with that because now we have to label everything right well if you're an academic then then you know you got to fit into these boxes you don't neither one of you guys fit into the boxes which i think society's trying to force me to think in uh, that academics are well it's funny because you know i've got two major research streams rob one is sport recreation and active uh, a city in the associate programming the other half of my life is actually something called learning city that you and i have never discussed Hmm. and so over the last eight or ten years and learning city starting to take a life of its own um is about reinventing education um and fundamentally redefining the nature of education um when i moved into academia the most disconcerting element i have and i'm in a business school is then recognizing that, um, uh, and this was the first round of most of the research I did in my first three years, was looking at the fundamental detachment of higher education from community. Why is, to a great extent, the white ivory tower the white ivory tower? Um, And how do we then make it, um, move it from an ivory tower into a town square um, that everyone can engage in? 
And the problem with it actually starts with academics. So a lot of the research we started moving into was going to the origin of what's the origin of the academic? Yeah. Where do they come from? Why are they in the silo? And one of the interesting aspects of it was the research that we did. I did this with colleagues at um, U of A, U of C, and, and, and other schools in which we started profiling and studying on a mass level the origin of academics. So one of the studies we did was about 860 business school professors at um, 13 different, I believe it was 13 different business schools in Canada, literally had students for a year code their CVs. And we just looked at where they came from, what have they done? Mm -hmm. And what we what we clustered, Rob, was this, and this is a big part of this conversation of, of bridging to community is, there were three types of academics. There's academics that come from really an applied background that don't have a terminal degree. So never pursued a PhD or equivalent terminal degree in their field, but they're community oriented people and, they're, and they tend to be very oriented around education. The other side of the spectrum is what we call academic only faculty. These are people that um, they were defined as essentially going straight from undergrad to grad to PhD or terminal degree. Um, they had less than three years of work experience in their field, Rob. So they never, ever left the conditioning of academia, right? Yeah. They represent in a business context, a business school context, over 60% of faculty are in that academic only space, Ooh. right? What we then saw was this middle group. And this is where David and I come from, which we call bridge faculty. Bridge faculty are people with terminal degrees and, and then more than three years experience in their professional area. Um, and then what we were looking at was, so how does that influence outcomes? And so, for example, one of the interesting outcomes of the study was if you're academic only, so what's your kind of measure of value? Mm -hmm. Because you've come up through academia, your measure of value is publications in high-ranked journals and citation counts, right? Yep. So what do you do? What, what's your goal? Your goal is to do research and publish in, in exclusively academic journals to drive citation counts, because that's your measure of value, right? On the other side, you've got the practitioner. What's their measure of value? There's community. The challenge is they may not have the academic kind of grounding to kind of link the two. The bridge faculty is interesting because what we looked at was the, the bridge faculty deliver on all the academic credentials of academic only. So they publish at the same level and they publish at the same citation count, and they publish at the same volume as academic only. But they're twice as likely to then take that research and disseminate it to community. So for example, I study, I publish at a very high rank journal, and then I write an op-ed, um, or I, I'm on a podcast. Yep. And what we looked at was that desire, because how, am I, how do I measure value? Sure. Do I want to be published in a high rank academic journal? Sure. If it lives there and stays there, I failed because I want my research to the impact community. And so it comes back to this conditioning challenge of higher education is, is composed of a bunch of people and we need to start fundamentally changing the people um, at the roots of it and their background and their history and their desire to engage in impact community. And at that point, then we build it as part of community. How close were you to getting into media? You ever give you ever think I, about journalism? Do you ever think about media broadcasting or anything like that? There, uh, I have I a purpose think, to this I, question. I have a purpose to this. Life, yeah. <laughs> very early on my life, Rob, everyone said, You missed your calling. You should be in radio. Um, so I uh no, I never kind of went down that road. Well, and the reason I asked that is that 
you have, and, and I hope this does not sound insulting, you have a loud mind. You're always thinking. You're, you're, quest, you know, you're questioning. To me, the best broadcasters were always questioners, right? They were always, you know, you get up in the morning and, you know, it's Saturday, but what's going on in the world? Well, I wonder what that means. I wonder what that means. I wonder that, what that, I just, it's very fascinating. You're, I, I feel like a little bit of a kindred spirit, the way you describe your curiosity and, and nothing is, you can always be better, right? Or can we do, can we be better academics? Can we be better, you know, can, can we, how can we come out of this? Like, you must have a very loud mind. Yeah, and I think your loud mind, you nailed it. It's curiosity, man. It's, yeah. And that's one thing I always see in the killer app, man. There's two killer apps. Curiosity and empathy. If we can teach people to be more curious and more empathetic, the world's a much better place. Right. And I don't care what discipline or field you're in. Those are absolutely foundational because that triggers everything else. I care about making the world a better place. That's curiosity. And I care about people and where they're coming from. That's empathy. Man, the collision of those two is the world. And so if you look, take if you if you can see those in children and learners and adults and think about how am I better today from a curious curiosity perspective and am I might be more empathetic today, we are just going to be a much better place to be. Well, that with a curious mind really makes me excited about the last question for you. Without parameters, give me your hidden Calgary gem. Oh, man. You know, the hit, so, so again, I'm trying not to be a softie on this one. The hidden Calgary gem for me is the size of Calgary. Hmm. Um, and I'll tell you where I'm going is um, it's a sweet spot, man. I've said this for years that um, you grew up in a, in a, in a place like a Toronto or a Montreal or Vancouver, um, the geographic reality, the, the size of 5 million people, there's only so much of a community you can have. Um, some of the collaborative activities happening in this city, um, whether it be post-secondary institutions, community groups, are, are able to mobilize a reasonable, like we're not too small, where we don't have the resources and assets available to us. We're not too big that it becomes a paralysis of trying to move things. The opportunity, I believe, in Calgary is we're just big enough just big enough that we can get, frankly, our shit together as a city and make a difference um, and actually have a big difference on our community and on the people in it. Um, and that's the sweet spot that I think we as a city need to do things much better at because that's from, I've been saying this for the last few years, active cities, a reflection of it, bounce back YYC, a reflection of that belief that if we get together and collaborate, we can have massive impact. Um, and and not get lost uh, at a civic level. You are a cool dude. Thank you, sir. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I, it's, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, it's always challenging when somebody's more curious than you. So this was fun for me. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate the opportunity. This is an amazing podcast you're doing. I'm listening to them all. So uh, thanks for contributing to the community during this uh podcast or <laughs> during this pandemic challenge we're having dr finch dave if i may be so bold great guest um fun guy um and not afraid to tell you what he's thinking which i love and 
part of what makes Calgary so great, really. He's part of that sport culture and that sport society and that sport, you know, whatever you want to call it, community, I guess, and, and a, an anchor in that. So uh, if you want more information, check it out, Active City Collective and Bounce Back YYC. Um, seek them out, find out what they're all about. The, uh, the weekly sessions are, are well worth your time. Uh, they're a lot of fun. So thanks to Dr. David Finch. Thanks to all of our guests of late. Uh, boy, we've had some great ones, haven't we? Duff Gibson was awesome. Grace Defoe was awesome. Trent McCollin, all the way back, uh, comedian, great. Tommy Wielden Jr., speaking of Trent's uh, football guy, the, great. Uh, Tom Higgins, geez, who else? Have, Brent Cron. We've had some great ones. And we got some more coming up. Looking forward to it. Go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and, and sign up. Make sure you're uh, uh, regi- whatever uh, subscribe. I believe that's the word the subscribe um we're back with you soon thanks for listening i'm rob kurt this is an original six-beat podcast for sport calgary